0: On this episode of the London Lyceum, we talk with Dr. Adonis Fadu about the doctrine of inseparable operations. We cover topics like, what is this doctrine? Why has this doctrine fallen on hard times? What does it really mean to be unified and yet distinguished in the Trinity? How are various dogmatic areas truly Trinitarian in light of inseparable operations such as incarnation, atonement, the indwelling of the Spirit, and more? As always, if you have thoughts about the episode or ideas or requests for the show in general, you can hit us up, Twitter, Facebook, Instagram, or you can check us out at our website, thelondonlyceum.com. Now, for the only analytic, Baptist, and confessional podcast on the planet, we think this one's going to get you thinking. I'd like to welcome all of our listeners to another episode of the London Lyceum, where a podcast that's devoted to thinking, but we don't want to just think in the abstract, we want to think well. So in an effort to think well, we've tried to promote this uh, intellectual culture that's full of charity, curiosity, critical thinking, and cheerful confessionalism. I am one of your hosts, Jordan Stefaniak.
1: And I'm your co-host, Brandon Askew.
0: And today, I'm really looking forward to introducing you to Dr. Adonis Vidu. Uh, hopefully I pronounced your name right, Dr. Vidu. Uh, thumbs up, I'll take that. So <laughs> I this he's got this new book. And I've got it next to me. It's called The Same God Who Works All Things. And it's on the topic of inseparable operations, which if you read the book, if you read even just in the introduction, you'll find out there's been no full length books on this topic, which I found fascinating and interesting. I did not know that. Uh, That's a little surprising to me. It seems like it's a super important topic. So I'm really looking forward to talking to you about the book talking to you about the topic, I think it's really important right now and and all the time. So before we jump into all of that, why don't you give us a little background of who you are for the listeners who may not be familiar with you, and then why and how you got interested in the topic.
2: Well, hi, Jordan. Hi, Bren. It's great to be on the podcast with you guys. Um, I have heard about the London Lyceum uh, (laughs) for a while uh, and saw it on Twitter and a few other places. and. When you guys contacted me, I said, yeah, absolutely. I want to be on that podcast. So appreciate uh, appreciate being, being with you guys. Um, yeah, I um, um, I hail from Romania, uh, which is a country in Eastern Europe, um, uh, which is where I did my theological education. Undergrad, I have a master's in philosophy in, from Romania, one of the state state universities in Romania. I did my PhD in the UK. Uh, working with uh, Anthony Thistleton at the University of Nottingham Uh, and I've been teaching um, I've been teaching in the United States since 2008 at Gordon Conwell Theological Seminary Um, so that's that's where I work and I teach on the area of systematic theology theological hermeneutics doctrine of the atonement trinity obviously and a few other things so yeah you want me to get into how I got uh, interested in the book
0: yeah, go ahead. Lord, I mean, like- uh, I'm supp- I didn't know you studied under Thistleton. I think that's fascinating, so I, I've read some of his books, and I felt, feel like he's kind of a master of the hermeneutical realm.
2: He really is, you know He really is in so many ways. Uh, he's been so influential, like a whole generation of evangelical scholars. Um, it made people aware of the importance of thinking about meaning. Uh, and not just thinking about the technique of exegesis, but thinking bigger questions than just how to get to the authorial intention, which is really important. But there's so many, so many other broader questions involved here. And he was a pioneer in this field. Yeah, I was really fortunate to study with him. Um, yeah, you're right. Um, so just, you study with this- Thistleton,
0: and uh-huh. then how how is it you make the transition to Trinity? Uh, thinking, to, about, thinking about the Trinity, I mean.
2: Right. Well, yeah, I, my, my focus on, in my doctoral work was on um, uh, narrative theology or post-liberal theology. Folks like Stanley Hauerwas, uh, Hans Frey, George Lindbeck. I threw in a little bit of John Melbank in there. So it was mostly about uh, what does it mean to, it was about theological epistemology. Uh, and then I did a book after that uh, on neopragmatism, Donald Davidson, Hillary Putnam, and a few others, Richard Rory. Uh And then after those two books of theological method, I said, enough of this throat clearing. <laughs> I need to start saying something theologically, <laughs> you know, because I it was really feeling very dry. I was feeling dried up by, by just doing epistemology and theological method. Uh, and I got interested in the atonement. So that was the third, kind of my third contribution, my third book. I wrote a book on, uh, called Atonement, Law and Justice uh, with Baker, t- 2014, where I looked at various models of the atonement, theories of the atonement, um, and I began to realize that the doctrine of God is really important to understand the acts of God. So how, how do we interpret the act of the cross uh, without proper attention to the divine agency? So what does it mean for God to act? And so on and so forth. Uh, I got interested in divine simplicity. So that's that, was, that happened in 2014. And then as I was thinking about divine agency, um, the concept of inseparable operations was popping up all over the place. Um, and I became really intrigued in, in that concept. Um, and I started searching, started reading, and I realized there wasn't anything on it, anything book-length on it. There were some good pieces here, here and there, but nothing... Book length, and I realized this was an opportunity to make a contribution that really fills a gap, like a genuine gap in in, in scholarship. Uh, and I, yeah, I, I consider myself to be, you know, really fortunate to have stumbled upon this gap uh, before Fred Sanders or someone else. <laughs> <laughs> so, um, and 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 to have filled it. So, so that's what brings me to the Trinity.
1: Well, I, I guess the best place to begin is for you to tell us what the doctrine of inseparable operations is um some of us are are familiar with the terminology but you know as as far as you know going in depth on it i know for myself like this is pretty new for me um so and and i was reading through the introduction of your book and maybe as part of your your definition um you can help us to understand what you mean by this distinction you make between hard inseparability and soft inseparability. Cause I think that's, uh, that's important for maybe getting a handle on um, these foundational issues about how we understand the doctrine itself.
2: I think it's a, I think it's a very important distinction. Um, and, um, the, the reason why I think it is important is because I've come across many different ways of affirming inseparable operations, um, in the folks that I've read. And I, I realized that, that some of these um, understandings of inseparability uh, do not really fit with the, um, with the Orthodox consensus on the doctrine of the Trinity. Um, and I'm calling those readings the, sort of the soft inseparable inseparability, which by which I really mean the idea that when the, the persons of the Trinity are acting, they're acting in concert collectively, cooperatingly. Uh, Each one has their own role, but together they're doing something. So you know, you can we can use the analogy of a team where someone's running defense, someone's running offense, and so on, but together they're doing the same thing in a in a broad kind of way. Um, So I'm contrasting that with hard inseparability, um, by which I mean that there's a single God and therefore a single agent. So God is always acting as one. So everything that that any of the persons of the Trinity does, the other two also do. Mm-hmm. So they're all involved in exactly the same actions, um, and doing exactly the same actions. And this obviously raises some difficulties and objections, and so on and so forth. And I think it's those objections that very easily lead into the into this this escape of soft inseparability. Um, but I think. People are kidding themselves when they're going that route because it's they're not they sort of abandoning some of the some of the earlier stuff that's really important in the doctrine of the Trinity. So I've become suspicious of people thinking about uh, talking in terms of roles, the roles that the, the persons have, and and so on. You know, it's interesting that um, <clears throat> one of the like the uh, when I first started to to uh, research the doctrine of inseparability i actually tried to give an account of inseparable operations um by way of an understanding of collective action mm-hmm. so i went into the philosophy of action i looked at collective ac- collective actions and i tried to say okay there's something like this we can understand inseparable operations on the model of collective agency and i actually wrote wrote a conference paper i published a paper on this and i realized that wait a minute i was wrong it it doesn't work like that. So, um, because it's still several agents, it's still several gods. Um, if, if you're thinking about cooperation.
1: So was there one sort of thought or one, other doctrine like a related doctrine that made you realize you had gone in the wrong direction like you know divine simplicity or you know the the one will of, of god like was there one thing that you when you really stopped and you you reread what you had already put out you're like well this conflicts with with this other thing that i want to hold on to
2: yeah, Or was I think it you're right yeah yeah okay mm-hmm. yeah i think definitely definitely it was maybe it was a matter of taking the, taking the tradition more seriously and um And and really diving into the tradition where you discover such things as divine simplicity, one will, uh, one operation, and the the way in which the idea of one operation actually functioned early on in the development of Trinitarian theology. The way it was being leveraged by the Cappadocians, by Athanasius, Didymus the Blind, and a few others, it was, you know, without it, without this hard account of inseparability, you wouldn't have the divinity of Christ. You couldn't affirm the divinity of Christ or the divinity of the Holy Spirit. Uh, mm-hmm. So I began to realize that, uh, that, that my sort of my, my incipient account was not really working.
1: Now, do you think that a, a neglect of tradition is, is a, one of the reasons um, th- that this doctrine has fallen on hard times, you know, in maybe modern uh, Trinitarian theology, or do you think there's other
2: reasons? Well, yeah, I've, I've tried to, I've tried to unpack that a little bit. Uh, on the one hand, there's definitely this neglect of tradition, um, which, which is connected to a certain kind of biblicism we encounter in, in Protestantism, um, which is this sort of, um, untrained, um, the reading of scripture apart from the great tradition, um, you know, reinventing the wheel, the wheel, basically, you know, and I think that's definitely that's definitely part of it. But at the same time, you're going to find um, people that are very knowledgeable about tradition, folks like Colin Gunton and Catherine Lacuna and um, even Karl Rahner, I would say, um, who are, you know, who know the tradition and still they're pushing against it because they think there's a there's a blindness in the tradition to the diversity of persons and they want to emphasize that more than the unity they think there's an it's skewed in favor of unity it's skewed in favor of metaphysics as opposed to scripture and revelation and incarnation and so on mm-hmm. so one of the things that i've tried to do in the book is to say that the doctrine of inseparable operations is not a metaphysical conclusion it's primarily a biblical datum Uh, and it's because it's in scripture that we can affirm the divinity of christ and the holy spirit so i try to i try to sort of steer away i'm not trying to deduce it from simplicity Mm -hmm. right i'm finding it in scripture it's the basis upon on which we erect the whole doctrine of the trinity right but you can sort of you can sort of deduce it as well from divine unity and divine simplicity, but not it's not the only way.
0: Yeah. That seems like a, a more persuasive approach to people who are considering the issue to me, because if you have to deduce it from simplicity, they already have questions about simplicity or already have uh, maybe suspicions about the, what exactly simplicity is. So it seems if we're starting from the biblical text and working our way there, uh, it's probably gonna be more persuasive to people who aren't sure about the doctrine. So I, I did find that I, I like the way you handled that. I like the way you did that. Um, something you said that was curious to me. I mean, you said a couple of things that I, I'd love to expand on. Um, well, I think earlier on you mentioned how I think some of these thinkers who are have a soft version uh, of inseparable operations. Maybe they haven't thought hard enough about the tradition, the old, some of the older writings, and some of what they were saying and thinking. What is it that these, who are these older authors, and what is it that they are saying and arguing must be the case about inseparable operations?
2: Right. Um, so these are the very same writers that have been central in the establishment of the early doctrine of the Trinity. Of the Trinitarian consensus, basically in in Christianity, folks like uh, Athanasius, Augustine, Didymus, I think is is a quite a neglected figure, the Cappadocian Fathers, Basil, Greg, the the two Gregories, um, and th- this is just basically the early the early patristic consensus. And if you read these writers carefully, you'll see that really they're exegeting Scripture. And, they're, and there's, they're noticing something in Scripture that to Jesus Scripture ascribes to Jesus precisely the acts of the Father, the activities of the activities of the one God, the activities of, of Yahweh, not just activities that are uh, not just types of activities that Yahweh and others might, might engage in, but primarily the, the unique act by which Yahweh creates. And if, if Jesus is established as the creator, um, then it's clear that, that he and the Father sh- share the, the same agency. And it was because of that, prim- I would argue primarily because of that, it, that, that people could affirm with conviction the divinity of Christ. Mm-hmm. Right? And these writers were saying, okay, um, their argument was something like this. Uh, they share the same operations, therefore they must share the same substance. So it was from the from sameness of operations or from unity of operations to unity of substance. And this is the whole this is the, the whole edifice of Trinitarianism that's basically based on that.
0: Yeah, that's so, a, that's pretty oh, good Jordan. No, I just I think it's interesting the, the argument. Uh, from operations to substance. Um, Like, I I think I buy it, but I don't, I I imagine that there's other people who would say, I I don't see how that conclusion follows. Um, Do they tease that out any more than just kind of the assertion that unity of operations means unity of substance?
2: Yeah. I mean, they go in quite, quite a bit of detail here. Um, And the, I think the reason it, it, it may be hard to see how it follows for certain kinds of things. For example, if Jesus, Jesus forgives sins, right. And you're saying, okay, Jesus forgives sins and the father forgives sins. What for, why might, why must they be the same, the same person, right? I mean, you could still make the argument that only, only God can forgive, but, but some would say, okay, maybe God delegates this, like he delegates other things, right? Maybe Jesus is God's appointed agent, you know, dispensing divine forgiveness and so on and so forth. You could say that. Uh, in other words, there are there are, there are certain action types where you can see Jesus participating with God, but still being separate agents. But when you're talking about the, the the single act of creation, which cannot, by definition, be delegated because there's no one that exists besides God. Right. Right. When you're saying that particular act is the act that. Christ accomplishes, that Christ acts, then you really are not, you don't have any more, any more, any more wiggle room here.
1: So if you know, we've established the unity of of the divine substance, so maybe now pivot over to the how we distinguish between the persons, because, you know, we, we have to have some way of, of making a distinction between father, son, and spirit. But of course we don't want to overcorrect and then have what we were um, talking about earlier about them being collective agents. So what is the best way to understand um, how to distinguish between the three persons?
2: I've had to make a choice in this book, whether I, um, whether I actually get into the discussion, the intra-Trinitarian discussion, um, as to what do we understand the persons to be um, or whether I, simply, um, whether I simply assume a Trinitarian consensus and work within that Trinitarian consensus uh, and sort of respond to objections from within that Trinitarian consensus. I decided that I couldn't possibly get into the kind of debate between classical trinitarianism and, say, social trinitarianism. Mm-hmm. Right, that it would be it would be too much. I mean, the book is already thick enough. It probably would be too much to get into that. So I kind of just assumed um, assumed that uh, we have sort of uh, trinitarian orthodoxy uh, in the earlier stages, east and west, with its own distinctions and so on and so forth. Right. Mm-hmm. Uh, so I don't really get into that question right? Um, But the question appears for me in terms of how do we differentiate between the actions, like within the unity of actions? Is that the only thing we can say about the actions that they are inseparable and indivisible? Is there any way of showing the diversity of persons or the distinction of persons within the unity of action, Mm -hmm. right? So my focus is not on how do we distinguish the person's from one another within the Trinity, but how do we distinguish between their different modes of their own operations within the unity of inseparable operations? Does right. that make sense? Brian? It does. Yeah, it does. Yeah, yeah. So that's where um, th- that's where uh, at some point in the book, uh, I have to talk about the so the the so called doctrine of appropriations, um, which is a way of um, of highlighting the distinction of the persons. Um, within the unity of operations, but also I talk about the so-called mode of operation. So, just as within the Trinity, each of the persons is a mode of the divine substance, a mode of divine existence. In this, in the, in a similar way, in every operation, there they have their own modes of the operation. Right. Um, so maybe we, maybe I can just stop there and see, you know, what.
1: Well, I think. Follow up. Yeah. I, I, well, I think where we are now, maybe it would just be helpful to look at a few different instances because we, I think we've got a good grounding on exactly what it is we're talking about here. And we've made the distinction between hard and soft and, and what, what we mean by this doctrine of inseparable operations. And and it makes sense. But then when you, when you try to apply it to specifics is when maybe I think it, um, it gets harder for some folks to understand. So take the, the incarnation, for example, Mm -hmm. you know, we, um, we don't want to affirm that the that the father becomes incarnate um so maybe walk us through how how the incarnation is is trinitarian how to understand inseparable operations in light of the incarnation
2: okay great uh so um i'm not really cutting any new ground here i'm basically trying to repeat what um what this earlier consensus did when they tried to to wrestle with these conundrums right because these objections have arisen very early on right Mm -hmm. and and of course it's false to say that the father became incarnate or that the spirit became incarnate so how can you claim vidu right that if this if the son does any action then the father is also doing that action but then you're denying that the son's becoming incarnate implies the father's becoming incarnate so Mm -hmm. how do i respond to that uh, in in the book, what I try to do is to distinguish between acts acts and states. Between an action, which is which I'm defining as the production of an effect. Right? An action is the production of an effect. I'm really using an an older definition, a definition of Aquinas, um, which I don't, which I do not think is you know terribly problematic, and, uh, or it, it shouldn't be very controversial. Um, so by Uh, By that measure, um, whatever pertains to acts in the Incarnation is commonly produced by all persons of the Trinity, but the state resulting from that action belongs only to one of them, belongs to the Son alone. Right, So the, I, I try to use this analogy throughout the book. I'm using an, a magnetic analogy. I don't know if you've, if you've seen it in the book. Every, it's, it's present here and there. And I'm, I'm saying, I'm using this, uh, this illustration of a magnet. And the magnet as a whole attracts, uh, draws a needle to it. Right? But the needle is attaching itself specifically to just one of the poles of the magnet. Right. So I want to say that the whole magnet is drawing the needle, but only one of the poles receives it. So similarly, the whole trinity is creating the human nature of Jesus Christ, but giving it to the Son only. Uh, Cyril of Alexandria uses a similar example of um, the whole trinity, the whole trinity um, dressing the Son with the human nature. Right. So the dressing, which is the act. Mm-hmm. is being done by all of them but the state of being dressed belongs to just one of them so
1: if and i could be wrong about this but i'm i'm almost and i should have looked this up before we came on but um i think the new testament um it it identifies father son and spirit as um the one who resurrects christ's body um but and and i'm trying to think of maybe the analogy here of, of the being dressed. So, so mm-hmm. father, son, and spirit are said to, um, to have resurrected Christ's body in different places in the new Testament. But, of, but of course the son is the only one being resurrected. Is, is that a, a, the right okay. understanding?
2: It's going be similar to that. Yeah. Yeah. Because being resurrected is also a state. Um, and, and you, and, and the son says that he has, has it within his power to give his life and to, and to take it back. Right. And it's the spirit mostly uh, that's sort of credited with having resurrected Christ. But but the, if you go by way of classical Christology, um, you you will not you will say that, that, that Christ does not die in his divine nature. Right. Right. Christ remains alive and sustainer of the universe even in his death. Uh, so therefore, the whole Trinity, you might say, resurrects the body of Christ. Yes, I agree mm-hmm. with that.
0: W- what about you know, I when I when we scheduled this interview with you, I sent a message to one of my friends, Corby Amos. He's a Trinity nerd. And I was like, hey, we're we're interviewing a Adonis. Man, I just butchered it. Adonis, Adonis. Adonis is fine. Yeah, you're going the British way. I am going
2: to yes.
0: We're interviewing him. And I was like, what would you want to ask him uh related to this? And he. Uh, Uh, the, the question that came to his mind was if we affirm a hard understanding of inseparable operations, does that mean the son is begetting himself in uh, eternal generation? How does that break down? I mean, it, it seems kind of strange that he would have some working of himself to beget himself. Does that make, does that question make sense?
2: Oh yeah, but I have such an easy way of ducking that question. That's a good. That's a good question from and and you know such such as one would expect from Corby. I know Corby a little bit, um, and uh, and the easy the, the really easy way to duck that question is to say, inseparable operations uh, refers to the other extra works of the Trinity. Uh, the intra works of the Trinity are divisible, right? So they're the corollary of the of the principle that external operations are indivisible is that the internal operations are divisible. In other words, the the distinctions between the persons are established imminently. They are not established economically, right? But within the, the imminent Trinity, we have these distinctions being established in whichever way they're established, right? And this is where we're talking about eternal generation and all of that. And Corby is getting probably is getting at that whole idea of eternal generation. And to that, I'm going to say, that's a whole other, that's a whole other discussion, right? Um, Yeah, no, that that makes sense. Yeah. yeah,
0: I I think that totally makes sense of this. So when it comes to the internal, this just isn't really relevant. So he's not begetting himself.
2: I'm not saying that. Okay. So I'm not saying he's not begetting himself. I'm not, I'm not saying he is begetting himself. Yeah. Right. I'm I'm just saying that that's a whole, that's, that's a, it's a it's a different discussion, it's a complex discussion which which has to um keep account, it has to sort of respect the fact that the persons and the nature are equi primordial, as Gilles Emery he uses this word. In other words, they're equally primordial. They're not not one is not more important than the other. The essence does not generate the persons, and the persons do not make the essence, right? The, they, they are, so the distinction and the unity obtained simultaneously, but on different it. levels, right? So when you're asking a question such as this one, uh, what's behind the question is that if the sun is part of divine nature and the divine nature is what, what sort of uh, generates the persons, then in some sense, the sun generates himself. Um And I think... I think that a lot more goes into that and um, than just that. It's a little bit too simplistic to say that, to say that.
0: That makes sense. Yeah. So maybe we talk a little bit about the atonement. I know you've done a lot of work on the atonement. You've got a book previously on it. How is this a Trinitarian account? What does it look like for the Trinity to inseparably work in that? And you can tease that out as much as you want. Um, Because I think obviously you've done a lot of thinking on on that subject.
2: Yeah. um, And I think I've only just scratched the surface. Uh, I think it's, I think there's so much, so much more that needs to be said. Uh, What I've tried to do um, primarily in the book is basically to critique certain caricatures. That was kind of my, my focus. Critiquing certain caricatures of, of of how the how penal substitution is understood uh, as one of the doctrine, one of the theories, or one of the models of the atonement, right? Which is very common in Protestant circles, uh, evangelical reform circles as well. So, mm-hmm. um, I, I'm 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 an advocate of penal substitution in the sense that I think it's an it's a necessary dimension of the cross that we uh, we take Isaiah fifty three seriously. Uh, we and you know Galatians three the curse. All of that stuff, we take it seriously, but how do we, how do we interpret it? How, how do we stay Trinitarian right in, in thinking about the cross? And, what, and, and I'm trying to say I'm trying to say a couple of things here. Um, the first thing that I'm trying to say is that you can't pit the father against the son, um, because then you're giving up inseparable operations. You're giving up um, that they have the same power. Uh, that have the same well. You can say the second thing you want, actually, I think maybe more than two more than two things. You can say that that God is turned from one attribute to another, that he's turned from from wrath to mercy because that involves divine mutability. It sacrifices divine simplicity and all of that. so 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 that's something that you need to qualify, right? I'm not saying there's no place for that kind of language. No, there is there is room for that kind of language in the same way that there's biblical room for language of God repenting of the evil that he wanted to cause the Ninevites and so on. So, so there's room for that kind of language, but, but as a theologian, you have to, you have to qualify what you mean by that very carefully. Um, Need there. So there, so if the, if the persons act inseparably, if they are inseparable from one another, you can't really take literally the idea that the father turns away from the son that there's a break in the relationship between the father and the son. Um, And this takes us into the, actually a little bit into the imminent Trinity, because um, if the father and the son are made to be what they are precisely by the relationship that exists between them, right? The relation that the father has to the son is not accidental to the father's being the father. He's not first father and then he has a son. He is made to be father by him having a son, right? So if we take "My God, My God, why have you forsaken me" in the sense that there is a break in that relationship, then there's no one left to resurrect Jesus, because there's there would be no more father, no more son if that relationship is broken in any way. So so I think I think Thomas called does a great job of unpacking some of the stuff in his in his little, little book on uh, the cry of dereliction, uh, forsaken. Um, so, so, so those will be, you know, two, two or three things. Another thing that I, that I uh, would want to say is, um, I think that's enough for now, actually, you know, in terms, in in terms of the atonement. Yeah.
1: So something we talked about briefly, uh, on, on another episode is the difference in the way the Westminster, um, confession and the Savoy and the second London, Talk about the work of Christ. So the Westminster says that Christ satisfies the justice of the Father and the Savoy and the Second London, um, they change that to Christ um, satisfied um, the justice of God. Does does that change? Do do you think that 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 factors into, do you, well, obviously, I, well, maybe no, maybe not obviously. I don't know if you know the reason behind why John Owen changed that or not, but do you think that that plays into this discussion of inseparable operations as maybe um, a, a motivating factor for, for changing that language from father to God? I,
2: I don't know what the original backdrop to this is, um, but I think it um, in sub, both inseparable operations, probably simplicity more. Okay. more than inseparable operations plays a part here. And the argument goes something like this: um, Each of the divine persons shares all of the essential attributes of God. So if justice is an essential attribute of God, then each of them share. Mm-hmm. so so you can say that the Father is the one which some who who some somehow, is the treasurer of justice and the son is somehow the treasurer of mercy or something like that of love or something, because that assigns different essential attributes and therefore it divides the essence of God into three or two or whatever. So, so if Paul calls Christ the, um, the power and wisdom of God. So if, if, if Christ is the power of God, does that mean that the Father is not the power? Right or the that the father's not wise, right. right so so you have here this sort of you know complicated um I maybe mean, not so complicated but rigorous grammar of uh, divine attributes and how they are predicated to each of the persons. So if there is any wrath that's being satisfied, as I think there is it's 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 the wrath of God as a whole, it's the wrath of Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, not just the wrath of the Father. and I think the beauty of inseparable operations is that it does not allow. Um, that objection against the atonement to even get off the ground, namely the divine child abuse, Mm
0: -hmm.
2: it just won't get off the ground. And the the only reason it gets off the ground is because we've been splitting them into roles and we've been making the Father the stern God behind the curtain and Jesus is the loving, merciful one. And it just creates this monster, I think, when it comes to our understanding of God.
1: And and one of the things I think you said in your your introduction is that what this doctrine does is it, it regulates our language and I think that's you know tremendously important because I think part of the problem is especially for preachers sometimes we're just sloppy with the way we talk about these things and it does have like very serious consequences one of which you just mentioned is it opens us up for this charge of oh well that's you know cosmic child abuse or whatever but when we're more precise, about the way we talk about the justice and wrath of God. Um, we don't even allow those objections to get off the ground. So I think that's a, that's a really good point. So thank you for that.
2: Yeah. Although preaching, I mean, it's, it's, it's hard to preach on the Trinity. It's hard to preach without making mistakes. And I think, um, I think because we don't we never comprehend God, we can you can never sort yeah. of condense all Trinitarian teaching in one, in one sermon. So I think the trick is, I think that part of the trick is to sort of constantly fall back on the creedal formulas. Yeah. Which, which do that. They sort of rein it in, in a sense. And, and they, you know, they put the guardrails around uh, our preaching and, and keep it, keep it honest. Uh, and also obviously to, you know, to sort of think maybe not so much in terms of one sermon, but in terms of multiple sermons, getting at it from different angles and balancing everything.
0: Yeah. Yeah. And for the record, Brandon stole my question. That was the exact thing that I was going to ask about <laughs> was the difference here between uh, the wrath of wrath of God or wrath of the father on the son in the atonement. One, one thing you just mentioned um, about, I guess, theological grammar. Uh, you mentioned, i you mentioned this early on uh, when you're talking about, I guess, this being a modest exercise in theological grammar and laws and in particular laws of grammar go out of use not because they're falsified by new discoveries um since laws do not do not so much make assertions as they make assertions possible and then here's the key thing that i'm interested in hearing a little bit more teasing out they go when they're no longer considered useful when better ways of organizing and framing the material are invented so i thought that was that's an interesting way to to understand and talk about theological grammar because I think I see a lot of usage of this language. There's a Trinitarian grammar. There's a Nicene-type grammar. It's using it's almost like a really popular phrase to use now, where we just you've got to know the grammar, and you kind of tease out what that looks like, what that means, and it, it seems that you're saying it doesn't mean this type of grammar doesn't mean this is the only way it can be said, but it does mean this is probably the, the most useful way. And until we find something that's more useful and more beneficial, why would we leave that? Is, am I, am I right in understanding that?
2: Partly I think, uh, I think that's partly what I'm getting at. Um, I, I I think the, the language of grammar in, in the book um, and this distinction between assertions and grammar, between assertions and rules is obviously, there's a little bit of Wittgenstein here, obviously, in you know, behind this. Um, but I think I'm trying to, I'm trying to warn people that I, my aim is not to comprehend God. And when I'm talking about hard inseparability, soft inseparability, appropriations, all of that, I'm not, I'm not pretending to have comprehended God. Um what I'm trying to elucidate are some of the patterns of appropriate orthodox ways of talking about God, which is what I think the creeds are doing, you know. So when the Nicene Creed and the the Chalcedonian Creed are are talking about the substance of God and so they're not really saying so many things positively, you know. Uh, but they're putting those guardrails in, it seems to me. So they're saying, you know, don't divide, don't divide a person, right? Uh, don't split the two natures into two two different persons uh, and so on. So all of that, does it say anything? Does it help us understand, comprehend? I don't think so. You know, but when we do get to statements that we can make such, such as God dies, I mean, Christ dies for our sins, right? And Christ, uh, you know, becomes sin for us. Those are, You might say in one level, those are the kind of the first order theological statements we can make, but we can only understand those once we attend to the grammar. And I know it's popular. You know, a lot of people are using this, you know, um, sort of cavalierly in in a sense, you know, grammar is pretty, it's a fad. I I agree with that. (laughs) But behind it is this distinction that I'm trying to make. You know, what I'm not trying to do is I'm not trying to, I'm not trying to paint God, depict him, represent him.
0: No, that's helpful. and I part of the reason I bring it up and just is because it does seem to be that fad word that a lot of people just use without understanding what it means. and it seems that you actually were very intentional in how you used it uh, and were very careful with it, which i which I really appreciated and thought was helpful. So I think that's interesting now, more broadly, i don't I don't want to leave this I, because I think part of the uniqueness of your work, like we've mentioned is it is the only full length treatment on this. What are the other resources that we should be aware of when we want to study this doctrine? Because I think there's a good segment of our listeners who they want to get everything. They want to read everything Trinitarian that they can get their hands on. So what are the other pieces of material that they need? Whether that's the older authors, like you mentioned, these patristic authors that that you've got to be reading, Athanasius, or you've got to be reading one of the Gregory's, w- whatever it may be, what are those pieces of material?
2: Yeah, so in addition to that, in addition to those writers that I mentioned, uh, and which show up in chapter two of the book, where I do a history, I try to canvas um, most of the contributions um, that have led to the establishment of the doctrine. So Athanasius, um, Athanasius on the Incarnation is really important. His letters to Serapion are really important. Didymus the Blind on the Holy Spirit, Augustine's the Trinity. Aquinas is a really big player um, in in this doctrine because he he is um, he's taking the Augustinian legacy and he's and he's detailing it. He's getting into into the nitty gritty of it. Um, he's much more uh, much more. Well, I don't want to say more nuanced than than Augustine, but um, he responds to objections more than Augustine does and. And he brings up some new language. Uh, in terms of moderns, um, I'm teaching a class on Call Bart right now, and and Bart, I would argue, is um, Bart really uh, affirms of operations and and the way in which he's he's working it out. He does take his time working it out, in in, in, in the volumes that he's writing, uh, is really refreshing, um, and very rich. Um, uh, John Owen. If you want to, if you want to look at, you know, one of the Puritans, if you want to look at some, you know, Protestant theologian, John Owen's communion with God, his Christology, Christologia, um those are excellent, excellent resources. Um, if you want to look at criticism of the doctrine, um, Catherine Maury Lacunia's God for Us is probably one of the one of the you know foremost foremost places to go. Rahner is also critical of the doctrine um but he's 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 really not very he's not that critical of everything it's not he's he's more he's he's nuancing more than his, than he's outright rejecting it um i'm not sure Is that is that what you were what you were looking at i'm, if yeah, you, I'm looking are you, i mean uh stephen holmes has a has a has an article specifically on on inseparable operations uh Kyle Clonch has an article on um Inseparable operations. Tyler Whitman has a, has a piece, a recent piece in the International Journal of Systematic Theology, on the same topic. Uh, he's worked with Webster, um, so there's these these are good good pieces, uh, sort of, you know, more pungent pieces, more you know, kind of specific. Yeah.
0: Now, uh, bef- I I want to ask this: uh, Why is it? Do you think that this doctrine either a, maybe it was just, it kind of got forgotten B um, it was downplayed or maybe C it was just, it wasn't expanded upon until more recently. What, what, what's going on there for it laying behind the scenes for a while? Cause it seems to me and just by the fact that there's no book length treatment and there's only a couple articles on it in contemporary literature like what happened there? Why why is this not being more promoted? Or am I just yeah. not reading all the right stuff?
2: <laughs> you're not reading Catholics. <laughs> so if you look at, you, or you maybe you're not reading Catholics. If you're looking at all the kind of the the, the Catholic manuals, uh, Catholic systematic theologies, uh, it's solidly present there. It's right there. Um, I I'm less familiar. I'm less familiar with Protestant scholasticism, Protestant post, post-Reformation dogmatics. Um, it's it's obviously there, but it's not it, it's 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 not a it's probably not as as um, um, as visible as as foregrounded. Um, maybe I'm maybe wrong about that. But the reason today it's not present, and and when I started teaching it about in my classes, like, well, like when I really started teaching it in my classes my students were really taken aback and, and they and they and they were they thought it was so counterintuitive and the reason it's counterintuitive is because in, if you look in the scriptures you see that well Jesus is doing those things and the father in heaven sends him and then and then when he ascends on his way back the holy spirit comes you know at pentecost and they seem to be doing different things you know on the on the surface of it they seem to be doing different things but the interesting thing about that is that propositionally if you read scripture it's affirmed jesus affirms that he's doing the the works of the father Mm -hmm. and the father is doing these works so even though he seems to be doing his own thing verbally he's interpreting those acts as being precisely the acts of the father so i think one of the probably one of the primary reasons within our evangelical circles why this doctrine has been sort of forgotten in a sense um, it has to do with this counterintuitiveness of the doctrine. It 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 makes, um, it makes reading. It, it sort of forces you to go beyond the first naivete of the reading of scripture, like first level reading of scripture. It forces you to to, to go a little bit deeper than that.
0: You know, it's funny. It almost seems like. Every important doctrine has just been forgotten by Protestants. Yeah. <laughs> I feel like I'm having this conversation with everybody. Why is this doctrine completely missing? Yeah. Right.
2: Yeah, uh, maybe I should qualify that. I don't. Wanna, I don't. I don't mean to say it's. I don't mean to say it's forgotten. And I, I yeah. hope I didn't quite convey the that impression that it was forgotten. And now Vito sort of recovers the doctrine. It would be, <laughs> right. It would be um, very arrogant of me to say that. But I'm. I'm sort of. I'm writing the book, a book on it, like a whole, and there haven't been these sort of book-length yeah. treatments on it. But in, in some sense, I think it mostly in our, in our sort of pop, at our popular, in our popular circles, in our, in our churches. And so on. it definitely has been forgotten.
0: Yeah. Yeah. I think that's fair. Yeah. yeah. So uh, it, for our listeners who want to follow you want to follow your work, where can they do that? Do you have a website? I know you've got a Twitter, so maybe you can tell us what that is. If
2: they want to follow that. Um, what does that look like? Yeah. I appreciate that. Um, I, I I am on Twitter. Um, I kind of have a love hate relationship with Twitter. Um, doesn't everyone, uh, you know, (laughs) (laughs) my handle is uh, a d i v i d u at A D I V I D U. um, I do have a blog as well. Um, and I have actually blogged through the writing of this book. Yeah. On that blog. Um, it's called Opera ad extra uh, dot And and you can see you can see in the blog, you know, when when you know I, I think I guess it started blogging through it about, you know, uh, maybe two, maybe one or two years into 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 the writing of the book. Uh, and you'll see me working through some of those ideas and and putting some feelers out there. I don't really blog a whole lot. Um, but so I don't, I don't have a big footprint, you know, on, on social media. And I think it's going to stay like this for the foreseeable future. <laughs>
0: <laughs> uh, that's awesome. Brandon, did you have any other burning questions that you really wanted to ask for
1: no, I don't. This has been a, a good discussion though. I've, I've really in, enjoyed it and, and I'm looking forward to finishing the book. So um, thank you so much for writing it and thank you for giving us your time. We really do appreciate it.
2: Absolutely. It's, it's been a pleasure to be, to be with you guys. And you, you've asked some excellent questions and, um and questions that are sort of rooted in having read the yeah. book, which I really appreciate. Uh, <laughs> so, yeah.
0: Well, well I mean, I'll I'll give just a a quick plug for the book. There's a lot, I I read a lot of books. um, And just from a stylistic perspective, I read a lot of bad books that, you know, you just got to work your way through. I think you, Dr. Vidu, you you write in a way that's easy to read, that's enjoyable to read. So it makes reading theology as it should be in my mind. I think reading theology should be where you're, where you're almost just like gliding along the sentences and it's really, yes, you're thinking, yes, you're engaging, yes, you're critically doing things, but you're also being drawn to the heavenly word where you're being reminded and your thoughts are being lifted to, to who God really is. So I find works like yours to be extremely beneficial. So I really appreciate all the hours that you've put in uh, that. I know you've given up other activities, given up stuff, to do or whatever. Everybody has to do that when they're writing a book, but I think the final product for this one is really good stuff. So I encourage everybody who's been listening. I mean, go get your, go get your hands on a copy of it. I think it's going to benefit you. You're going to enjoy it. I think it's accessible. I mean, you're writing it. A obviously, this is an academic book uh, for academic people, but I think, I mean, if the layperson wants wants to work for it, they they can definitely handle this. Um, for me, I think this is an ideal book that you would take some church members through as and lead that discussion if someone's more educated it helps just because you can handle some of the terminology I mean you what the first sentence you open with is was it Latin <laughs>
2: Yes, it's, it has some Latin. Yes, but it's a. It, it, I thought it was a well-known, it, a well-known Latin uh, expression. Well-known it's not Latin well-known physical. to me.
0: <laughs> but I mean, I don't know that much, so uh, I'll, I'll just take that as me just not being very aware of things.
2: <laughs> well, in Trinitarian, I think in Trinitarian theology, whenever anybody writes anything about inseparable operations they're using this Latin phrase so
0: I see okay well that, that
2: see that makes sense I'm gonna just say mea culpa you know mea maxima culpa so
0: <laughs> well I, I've had a blast talking to you I think this has been fun I think uh, if you're listening I think you've got a taste uh, of what the book's about it's kind of scratching the surface in a lot of ways I think there's a lot more that's going on there a lot more discussion that you'd really be able to engage with and think about um, so we, we thank you for taking the time to talk with us it's been a lot of fun and for everybody who's been listening, you've been listening to the only analytic, Baptist and confessional podcast on the planet. And we thank you for tuning in.
2: Thank you guys very much.